week, as some call it, or Passion Week, as others call it. It is called Palm Sunday because of the account that we find in the Gospels where the crowds had laid palm branches on the ground in their coats for Jesus to travel upon as he rode on the back of the colt into the city of Jerusalem. It is also called Holy Week, and this came about late in the 3rd century when there was a call to Christians to abstain from fleshly desires and to engage in periods of prayer and fasting. But it's called Passion Week because Palm Sunday officially begins Jesus' journey to the cross in the final days of His life. And going to the cross was His passion, and it was His expression of passion for mankind which was hopelessly lost apart from the salvation that He would provide. So Luke provides details in his account of the triumphal entry that the other Gospels have chosen to omit. All of the Gospels tell of the preparation for the Last Supper. All tell of the rowdy welcome of the massive crowds in Jerusalem who have gathered for the annual Passover feast. But only Luke records Jesus' response as He makes preparation to go into the city of Jerusalem knowing what awaits Him, knowing that this is the hour which has been set from the beginning of the foundation of the world. And we will see in this passage the sovereign mercy of Christ as He engages in going to the cross. So we're going to read the entirety of Luke's description of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, but we'll only focus on a small portion of this as a part of our message. Here's what it says in Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 28, to the end of the chapter in verse 44. After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he approached Bethpage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There, as you enter, you will find a cold tide on which no one has yet ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? They said, The Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus, and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now this next section is a section that only Luke includes in his gospel account. Verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace... But now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. So there are several periods in Jesus' ministry when the crowds of people who followed Him 
were just absolutely massive, countless by most estimations. And here, the crowd is probably at its all-time largest. Now we know from the feeding of the 5,000 that they only counted the men. And if we assume that there was a spouse and a couple of kids, Jesus fed in the neighborhood of twenty to 25,000 people. And it is very likely that this crowd is even larger. Since Passover was a major Jewish festival requiring all Jews to travel back to the city in an observance of this national feast as they celebrated the exodus from bondage to the Egyptians, this crowd was larger than normal. So according to the Gospel chronologies, Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead a few days earlier and this news about Jesus was spreading quickly through this massive crowd that had assembled for the Passover feast. So Jesus was seen as the likely and probable Messiah by most of the people, but in the eyes of the religious leaders, He was but another imposter who didn't fit the mold. Now we're going to look at these focal verses in five different sections. The first one you'll follow along in your sermon outline. It is the rejoicing of the people. Verse 37 says, As soon as He was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. Now geographically, the Mount of Olives is on a path that leads into the city of Jerusalem. So he was not on the city and not in the city yet, but even here, some miles away, the massive crowds had already been looking for his entry, knowing that as a Jew, he would be coming into the city of Jerusalem, and they have gathered to give him a hero's welcome. You think about the ticker tape parades that take place in New York City, or the parades that take place in other national cities where a championship has won. That gives you the kind of idea of the massive crowd that has gathered to welcome Jesus into the city. Luke tells us why they were so excited about His arrival, He is sovereign. Now, it's not explicitly stated that that is what they believed, but this is the only logical outcome as you examine the ministry of Jesus. You think about the countless miracles that He had performed in His three plus years of ministry. He healed the leper. He healed the blind and the deaf and the lame. He commanded the unclean spirits to leave these people that they possessed and they had to obey Him. He stilled the storms. He walked on water. He turned five fish and two loaves of bread into enough food that it fed 20-some thousand people and left baskets of leftovers to the number of twelve. They knew that there was something about Jesus that was different from any person they had ever encountered in their entire life. And they believed that He was sovereign because nothing could stop Him. I want to tell you, if you find somebody today that can heal leprosy and heal the blind and heal the deaf and heal the lame and raise people from the dead and walk on water, you're going to think to yourself, there's something pretty special about this individual. Wouldn't you think that? 
Well, we're not going to see that because only Jesus can do those things. But you can imagine how your curiosity and how your opinion would be swayed if you were to know of such an individual. And here he comes into the city. Throngs of people had gathered to greet Him because they believed that nothing could stop Him. They believed that He was the Messiah. And if He desired to do so, and yea, we even expect that you You will do so, you will remove the Romans from our treasured and prized city and we will reestablish the throne of David and you, the Messiah, will reign and we will be restored to the glory days of old. This is what they expected. This is what they desired. But they would soon find out that this was not what Jesus' mission was all about. This would lead to a change of heart among the people. Secondly, in our outline, we see the recognition of the people not only rejoicing at His entrance, but the recognition that they give to Him. Verse 38, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. As they had evaluated the person of Jesus, as they had listened to Him teach, as they had seen Him perform these countless miracles, things nobody else has ever done, they reached the rightful conclusion that this is God's King. There is none other like Him. He is not an imposter. There will not be another after Him. This is the guy. They had seen all the evidence that they needed to see in order to conclude that this is God's King. No one could do the things that Jesus did apart from the hand of God being upon them. Even the Pharisees had to recognize and they were not able to discredit the miracles that Jesus performed. What they instead chose to do was they attempted to discredit the person. When you have a man who is born blind and his parents attest to it and his friends attest to it and here he is in the 30th year of his life all of a sudden able to see because Jesus did something to him they cannot discredit the miracle they only discredit the person and the method that the miracle came about. In fact, some of the Pharisees, some of the religious leaders, accused Jesus of having the power of the evil one. When Jesus healed the demon-possessed man, who was both blind and mute, as recorded in Matthew 12, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of of the demons. You see what they did there? You did indeed cast out that demon, but you didn't do it by the hand of God. You did it by the hand of the one who rules over these demons, Beelzebul, which is another name for Satan, the evil one, God's enemy, from all the way back before the world was created. When Jesus healed a man born blind, as recorded in John chapter 9, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God. Why? Because he does not keep the Sabbath. You see, they recognized that he actually did perform this miracle, but they discredited him because he had the audacity to heal this man born blind 
on the Sabbath. Some of the Pharisees were having trouble completely ignoring the significance of these miracles. And John chapter 9, 16 goes on to say, some of the Pharisees were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. Now we do know from the Gospel accounts that after Jesus' resurrection, some of the Pharisees, most notably Nicodemus, came to attend to the body of Jesus, and Joseph Joseph of Arimathea, who was thought to be one of the religious leaders, took care of Jesus after he was dead, indicating that not all of the Pharisees rejected who he was. There was this struggle within them, but by and large, the Jewish nation as a whole we're not going to come to the conclusion that Jesus was in fact the Messiah as the events of Passion Week were to be played out. Now, all Jews wanted the same thing. They wanted the Messiah to come. They wanted their enemy, the Romans, to be displaced. And they wanted to be restored back to the people of God living freely in the city of Zion. All Jews knew what was prophesied about the coming of the Messiah. We read this almost every single Christmas, don't we? Isaiah chapter 9, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government. Or a peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And so every Jew was longing for and looking for the coming of the Messiah who would fulfill the prophecy spoken by Isaiah several hundred years before. And by most accounts, everything that they had seen in the life of Jesus seemed to fit the bill of the one who was able to overthrow the bondage of the Romans and restore them. The people were convinced that Jesus was the one who would do this But the Pharisees disagreed with this conclusion and they would do anything and everything to stop the completion of the heralding of this Jesus as the King of the Jews. The rejection that we see expressed by the Pharisees is verbalized here for us in verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now, it's very interesting that this is the last time that Luke will mention the Pharisees in his Gospel. It is fitting, and it is no coincidence, that he does so, and it describes the hostility that existed toward Jesus by the Pharisees from the very beginning of his ministries. From his ministry. From the very beginning of Jesus' teaching, they listened with critical ears, they rejected because of the things that he said, of what he said about himself. They discredited who he was because of the miracles performed and the method that he chose to perform those miracles. And here is a last reminder of this hostility that they had as Luke closes the book, if you will, on the mentioning of the Pharisees in his account. So the title teacher that they give to Jesus here is not 
an agreement with his teachings, nor is it, appro- is it their approval of him as a teacher of Israel. It is simply a title that is used by those outside his circle of followers who want something from him. If you remember, when the Pharisees would challenge Jesus, they would often begin the challenge with, Teacher, so-and-so says, such-and-such, what do you say? You remember that, don't you? So here is a very similar usage of the title, Teacher, but here they want Jesus to put an end to the praise that is being poured out by this massive group of people that which is being given to him and that which he, for the very first time, is accepting. If you remember all of the accounts where the crowds were heaping praise upon Jesus, he deflected it to the Father. I come to do what the Father tells me. I come to say what the Father tells me. I come to go where the Father shows me. That's what Jesus always says. But here, he remains silent and he receives the praise that the people are giving to Him. But what the Pharisees are saying is, stop this blasphemy, because the only kind of praise that this outpouring should be reserved for is God Himself, and buddy, you ain't Him. So you put a stop to this, because you are allowing this blasphemy to take place, and Jesus just sits idly by, accepting the praise being given to Him. And He does so because He knows that His hour is at hand. The very reason that He left His throne in glory was to come to this moment in time where He would go to the cross and become a substitutionary sacrifice and atonement for the sin of His children. The plan of redemption is about to be completed and Jesus is receiving the praise of these people. Number four in our outline, we see the response of Jesus upon this call to stop the blasphemy. Verse 40, But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Now that phrase, I tell you, that Jesus uses here, means that what He is about to say is very, very important. And the Jewish leadership would clearly understand the implications of the choice of words that Jesus uses here. And so what Jesus says in response to this call to stop the blasphemy is very simply this. This is appropriate. I'm not going to stop it. If I don't allow these people to give to me the rightful praise, then in their silence, the stones are going to cry out instead. The rocks would scream the joyful praise of God if His people did not praise Him. Now, not only does does this statement affirm the appropriateness of the praise being given to Him, but it also affirms His sovereign role in the universe He created. Think about that. If these people are not going to be allowed to praise Me, then in their silence, these inanimate objects all around us are going to scream the same kind of praise to the God that has sent Me to the God that is before you, to the God that is going to go to the cross, 
to pay the penalty for your sin. He is so worthy of praise that inanimate objects recognize this worthiness even if and even when people do not. I think this is one of the realities we experience when we are out and about in the world that God has made and we come across a scene that is so beautiful, it is so magnificent that it screams of the praiseworthiness of the God who created it. We've heard of the seven wonders of the world, these marvelous things that man has made, but they pale in comparison to what God has made in the world that He has created. I want you to take a look at this. These are unedited, unphotoshopped pictures that photographers have taken while they were out in the world that God has created. Unfortunately, you don't get quite the vivid color through a projector as you do through the TV on the back. But nonetheless, look at these pictures. The world that God has created scream of His praiseworthiness. These are things that God has made. These are things that man has had no contribution in. And they speak of the wonder and the majesty and the power and the sovereignty of God who has created them. As you look at these images... I wonder what our response would be to sit and just soak in the glory, to soak in the beauty, to soak in the power that just spoke these things into being and to sit in the radiance of the glory that they reveal to us about the God who has made them. It is a marvelous marvelous world that God has made. And when He sent His Son into the world to die on the cross, He didn't do it to restore the beauty of the world that He has created, but He did it to save the man who is created in the image and in the glory of God. The reaction of Jesus that we see as He now makes His way into the city of Zion... Now, it isn't clear if he is speaking to the Pharisees or if he is just speaking to a small group of people who are around him or if this is just a private lament that Jesus utters that the Spirit gives to Luke to record in the uniqueness of his Gospel account. Verse 41, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. He didn't weep over its physical beauty. He didn't weep over the splendor of the temple. He wept because he is filled with grief as he sees ten thousands upon ten thousands of people milling through the city, lost and without hope, who were going to very soon reject him with great finality and suffer the consequence of their choice. The word wept here is the strongest word in the Greek language for weeping. It speaks of a sobbing that by appearance cannot be consoled. I don't know if you've ever been to the the funeral of a non-Christian, 
But it is one of the most horrific experiences I think you can ever have as you hear people sob uncontrollably at the reality of a lost loved one that they will never see again, that they will never talk to again. And there is this closure over the separation that hits like a ton of bricks and there's not a thing that can be said to stop the sobbing. It is perhaps this kind of weeping that Jesus does on the back of this colt as He looks over the city. He sobs not because of the cross that was before Him, but because of the superficiality of His, of his supposed followers, of the hypocrisy and the shallowness of their commitment to Him that would soon be revealed it would be revealed as it culminates in the rejection of Him in just a few days when they shout, Crucify! Crucify! And Jesus is stricken with grief over the inevitable divine wrath that is going to follow the rejection of Him as the Messiah. So he is filled with grief. Secondly, he is aware of their rejection. Verse 42, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. So after three and a half years of ministry, as Jesus sits on the back of the colt about to enter into the city of his Father, this mass of humanity is not truly convinced of who He is and their superficiality will be exposed. The reality of who Jesus is has been hidden from them as a result of their rejection of who He is. They have filled the streets and covered the road with palm branches and the coats in honor of Him. They have shouted His praise and they have acknowledged that He has come in the name of the Lord, but their adulation is going to be short-lived because in just a few days at the prompting of the Pharisees, we would read in Luke chapter 23, Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again, but they kept on calling out saying, Crucify! Crucify Him! And He said to them the third time, Why, what evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt demanding death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. But they were insistent with loud voices asking that he be crucified. And their voices began to prevail. And Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand be granted. The same mass of humanity that a few days earlier shouted, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, are now shouting, Crucify! 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 Thirdly, Jesus pronounces judgment upon their rejection of Him. Throughout all of Israel's history, they have been disciplined and punished for their disobedience. And in this moment, their supreme act of disobedience, they will reject and kill their Messiah, resulting in another period of discipline 
that they will not soon escape. In fact, in just 40 years, A.D. 70, Rome will lay waste to Jerusalem and no stone will be left unturned and the sovereign, omniscient God pronounces the judgment that will come upon them as a result of their rejection. Verses 43 and 44. Five pieces that I'm not going to enumerate here, but five pieces of judgment that Jesus is pronouncing upon the city of Jerusalem. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. The Roman victory over Jerusalem was complete and it resulted in total annihilation, including the beloved temple. The city and the temple was completely ransacked and it's estimated by Josephus, the great historian, that in this attack, in this short-lived revolt by Jerusalem, 1.1 million people died and the vast majority of them were Jews. So instead of the rocks crying out in praise of Jesus, the rocks are the rocks will cry out in judgment against them because they did not acknowledge the Lord Jesus Christ, God incarnate, who offered them salvation and redemption and peace. I believe that we can infer that had the city of Jerusalem not rejected Him the way they did, the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 probably would not have taken place. That's in effect what Jesus is saying here. As we read at the beginning of our service in John 1, He was in the world and the world was made through Him And the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him. Think about that. Been 400 years with no prophet. John the Baptist was the last prophet to come to speak to the nation of Israel. They rejected Him. They allowed for His beheading. And here they have taken the one to whom he prophesied about and rejected him and nailed him to a cross. And they did not receive their long-awaited Messiah. So here on Palm Sunday, Jesus expresses mercy or grief over the hard-hearted, perishing people of Jerusalem. Our sovereign God who is filled with mercy allows us to become the children of God through our faith in His one and only Son. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. My friend, I want to tell you, when you reject Jesus as the Messiah, there is no hope. 
when you acknowledge His teaching, His miraculous power, but you discredit Him as the Son of God sent to be the substitute for your sin, there is no hope. Father, we give You thanks that You have awakened us to the reality of who Your one and only Son is. And You have enabled us to understand what it is He's done for us on the cross. And I pray that all through this week of Easter, Passion Week, Holy Week, whatever it is we like to call it, we would just be in awe of what You've done for us. God, I pray that You would drive more deeply into our hearts the understanding and the reality that You are our only hope. Our hope isn't in education, it's not in government, it's not in financial stability. It's only in You. We pray, Father, that You would strip away from us those things that prevent us from realizing with greater accuracy that truth. Father, how thankful we are to be in Your house on this Palm Sunday and declare to You that we will give to You the praise that You desire and deserve, not only through the songs we sing, but most especially through the lives we live, through the power of the Spirit that indwells us, for Your glory and Your honor. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.